Hey everybody, Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, episode 22. I'm Chris Webster. And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's show, we're going to be talking to the co-founder of the APN, Tristan Boyle, about the archaeology that's all around us. Let's dig a little deeper. All right, welcome to the show. So, um, if you... Uh, are listening to this and you saw the archaeology show pop up for five seconds a couple weeks ago as this posts um, we tried to record this live and that's going to work at some point we're going to get these live so um, if you haven't liked the archaeology podcast network facebook page um, go ahead and do that uh, so you can get a notification when we do go live and then uh, we're not just going live because i like seeing my face on here but um because actually i don't i don't like looking at it but anyway we're not going live, so we can do that. We're going live, and then we're also we're also posting the show as audio later on, so you can still listen to it, of course, just like normal. But the whole point of the live one is so we can interact with our audience, and you can ask questions. You can hear us recording live. If we have an interview, we might not be asking, uh, responding to comments unless we uh, get really used to this, and we say reserve the last 10 or 15 minutes of the show for comments or something like that. I don't know. It's uh, It's a whole brave new world for us. So um, we'll figure that out, but I've got to figure out how to use this freaking mixer first so I can get it working right. Um, and I'm going to probably, you know, solicit Tristan's help later on and uh, and Richie Cruz, who's my friend coming in. We're recording, um, uh, you call this archaeology today as we're recording this show. So anyway, um, this episode, however, uh, is running smoothly now and we have a Somewhat special. Uh, he's always special, I guess. Uh, special guest, but um, <laughs> we have the co-founder and uh, I guess my partner in crime with the Archaeology Podcast Network, Mr. Tristan Boyle, on with us. Tristan, how's it going? I'm well. I'm well. I'm well. Yeah, it's definitely nice. not a special thing to have me. You'll re completely regret this. So let's get this over and done with. This is one of those things. You know. I know. See, this is when I wish we had two separate tracks for you guys coming in, so I could just delete your track entirely, and then it's just April and I having a conversation like normal. So, but oh. we got to make you feel better, Tristan. So we brought you in on the I know, show. I know. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Anything, no. anything to help you out. You so actually. It. 
I know. Actually, the reason we have you on is because, um, well, Tristan and I were talking, because uh, we talk relatively frequently about APN stuff and other things, and, and Tristan was recently on uh, vacation, I'll translate that into European, on holiday um, for <laughs> in Italy uh, not too long ago, and uh, out there with his girlfriend, and and you made some observations. So, Tristan, why don't you uh, kick off this topic with some of the observations you were making? And there's also an ARC 365 about this very topic, too. So go look that up. Yeah. So basically, obviously, as a normal tourist would, I went to all the tourist sites in Italy. You know, I went to the Colosseum. I went to the, all the uh, Dumos, Duomos. I, I've been corrected by Italian people on how to pronounce the name for the cathedrals. But um, I basically... I don't know what it was specifically, but I felt that there was a different connection the Italians had to their history than what I know over here in the UK to our history. And it got me thinking about how kind of we preserve history over here and how history is a part of modern life. You know, when you're in Italy, even the streets are old. You know, streets are old and they're they're paved in such a way that you're like, oh, okay, that's that's interesting. Like the street is interesting. You know, mm-hmm. um, you go into places and you find kind of strange little things uh, from the past, little design choices, little kind of formations that you really wouldn't see every day. And these are just part of a normal average city. These are kind of built into the way things are. And I began to think about well, what does that mean for us? Like, how does that kind of work over in the UK? And I'm sure you guys can comment in America, but ultimately, what is the history and the archaeology around us? Because it wasn't just these sites that you go to that were outside the cities. They were very much a part of the main kind of coming and going that you would do in the city anyway. So it got me thinking about the archaeology all around us and perhaps a better way of kind of absorbing that icon of archaeology. So with all that in mind, I decided to set about doing an Arch 365 episode talking about how I kind of saw Scottish heritage. Because I've now lived here for seven years. Oh, God, it's been a long time. Uh, yeah, seven years. So I kind of feel as if I know bits of the place. But when it comes to the heritage here, there's a kind of a different feel about it. You know, often you'll have to travel a little bit to go and see the stone circles or the castles and stuff. And, you know, there's not really that kind of central, undeveloped kind of history there. Or so I thought. And when I kind of thought about it more, I began trying to see everything, not just the ancient past or the deep past, but the more modern history as a part of that heritage, too, you know. Like every single building, every single street that you have, they're all made by somebody. They're all part of material culture created by humans. You know, every single brick in the wall that you pass, that somebody put it there. That wasn't machine made. Somebody literally got up, had their breakfast, had their cornflakes. Other cereals are available. Uh, they they put they had a shower. They put their clothes on. They they went out to work. They you know mixed up the cement. They had a chat with somebody. They were putting these bricks together, and it made me think about then how in the past did people do this as well? You know, who, can we imagine when people were building things in the past? Did they have their breakfast and did they have a nice conversation? How how were they then tied to it? And it opened up this whole idea of how could we reciprocally talk about both the past as an interesting topic and see it as it is, but also then conversely apply that to the history we have right around us. I hope that kind of makes sense. Do you, do you know where I'm coming from? I mean, do you ever look at the streets and think, okay, I wonder why somebody did this. Obviously, America is <laughs> a bit younger than Scotland, right, so it is a little different. But do you know where I'm where I'm coming from? Yeah, and you know, I'll I'll, I'll start because uh, first off, every time you say archaeology is all around us, that song from Love Actually goes through my head. Um, but I don't know if that's just me. <laughs> Um, anyway, and I can't stop thinking about it now. I can't think of that, that old guy singing archaeology is all around us anyway. Um, so yeah, I think that's true. And it's funny, Tristan, that you're like, 
you think that about Italy, like you were in Italy and you had this revelation. I mean, um, because when we were in Scotland just two years ago, uh, I mean, obviously coming from America, Scotland was all like that for us, you know, and I've been, I was in Italy last year and Italy was of course all like that. I mean, we're living in, we were living in this small town where I think abs, almost every single structure was, had some sort of, um, antiquity to it compared to stuff in the United States. Of course, there's some new things, but you know, we're in a small town and a lot of the things there are just like really old, especially the streets. So it's interesting, and I was talking to my wife about this topic um, yesterday, I think, or this morning or something, and uh, I think Americans tend to forget um, not only about the, I guess, more recent history around us, because it is more recent compared to other countries, but we also are surrounded, if you know how to look at it, we are surrounded by ancient history as well. And, uh, and you know, the Native Americans have been here for, you know, it's disputed, but they've been here for at least... 12 to 14,000 years is pretty concrete date, um, and it could go back way, way farther. So, uh, and especially if you you live in like the Midwest or something like that, that little that little rise in that farmer's field or that little hump in the um, in the forest is uh, is possibly a mound, um, even a burial mound, you know, built by Native Americans 3,000 years ago, um, and you just don't know. So, and and walking out here in Nevada, walking out here on the ground, you see stuff all around you, and I see. A random projectile point or arrowhead sitting on the ground and man i sit there and think about it sometimes and i'm like how did this get here what is the sequence of events that led this thing to get here because it was quarried by somebody it was or a cobble was found and it was shaped it was carried it was um, probably treasured in the fact that they're you know not easy to come by not easy to make i mean probably back then they were but um, somebody really wanted this thing and now it's lying fully intact on the ground what the hell happened to make that happen? Is Did the person die? Was it an arrow that misfired and they never found it again and it didn't happen to break when it hit? What is? Was it inside an animal carcass that they processed and then just missed the arrowhead and trying to clean it back out? And, and now the animal's gone, but the arrowhead remains? You know, I mean, what, uh, what's the deal? I don't know. And, and April, I know down in Phoenix where you are, the, the Pueblos and things like that are just all over the place. Well, yeah, I think in the Southwest it's really easy to see the archaeology and the prehistory because it sits on the surface of the ground. So you're hiking and all of a sudden there's a room block or a huge lithic or shard scatter. Um, so it's actually quite easy to connect with the prehistoric archaeology in casual and rock art and things like that, just in very casual manners. But I think it, it's a lot harder to appreciate kind of the urban archaeology because it's really recent. You know, I live in a house from 1959 and people are like, oh, that's a really old house. Um, because for Phoenix, it's a pretty old house, but you know, anywhere else it's not. So I've, I, I do historic archaeology. So I'm interested in that more recent tangible past. So I find that, you know, just walking around town, if you start paying attention and start kind of, it's about, I think we're not taught how to read either urban archaeology or modern archaeology very effectively, even as archaeologists, because it's not something most of us focus in. And so once you start seeing it and thinking about it, you know, when you start walking around, you start asking questions like, why is this street laid out like this? This is a really weird diagonal street that cross cuts everything. Oh, there used to be a canal here. This is the road that ran along the edge of this diagonal cutting canal. Oh, okay. That's why we get some of these weird formations or why does this one house look this way? And so I think it really is. It's this process of learning to think about archaeology as something that's always present. And I, I just don't think we're very good at teaching ourselves to that in part because a lot of us specialize. Mm-hmm. We see What's... this archaeology we want to see. What what's the oldest? What what's the youngest archaeology you can think of? What do you mean by youngest? Well, I mean like where's the cutoff point? Ah, uh, well, legally it's fifty years for recording out here. No, I I, I know yeah, 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 fifty years legally, <laughs> but I mean like seriously, you know what? I mean technically, in all seriousness, the last five seconds are the archaeological record, are they not? Well, I mean, what, you're right. What, where, where's the where's the cutoff line? You know, and I think, I, I think for historic stuff, which is what we're talking about, as far as most recent, like when does it become archaeology? Personally, I think it's um, 
it you know you can you have to separate preservation and um, and things like that from archaeology because archaeology is not a is not an item um, like people tend to use it as. We tend to use archaeology as like a noun, but it's a process, right? Archaeology is a process of um, recording, uh, systematically excavating, sometimes not excavating, but recording information and then writing that down. That's archaeology. So to me, like the two buildings that are across from my building where I live that are completely abandoned and they surround this old hotel that's from the 60s that should be abandoned because it's a total junk hole. But um, the two buildings on either side, those are completely abandoned and they're owned by the city now because they've been they've been 100% abandoned and it's nobody wants to take them over because they have to be torn down or revitalized. I mean, that's archaeology right there because they've been abandoned and now they're in a state of they're in a state of decay that's no longer being maintained and to me that's when archaeology can step in from a recording standpoint um, but also from a preservation standpoint now if you're maintaining a building that like there's definitely buildings around me now the building I'm in right speaking from right now as a matter of fact is being maintained in a current condition to me that's just historic preservation and it's not yet considered archaeology if this building were abandoned and then somebody came back to it later and were to start looking through it now you're doing archaeology but then again if we were to pop a test unit in the backyard well that's archaeology so but the yard underneath was technically abandoned you know because the ground is abandoned as it builds up because we're not there anymore (laughs) so yeah it's an interesting question what about okay so when we moved into our house it it felt like archaeology to me because the people who before us lived here for 50 years. And so as we cleaned the house and moved in, we we're sort of doing the archaeology of their lives and finding all these tiny traces, you know, reading things like you can look at the carpet in an older house and see where people put their furniture. Uh, you could see path lines. So, oh, somebody walked around something here for 50 years. And you could sort of see the marks and wear patterns. And to me, it was sort of a form of archaeology because what I was doing is trying to read and understand how a past occupant who is no longer there had lived in this space, how they had moved through it, how they had interacted with this material and built world. And so it's not traditional archaeology, but it kind of is. Well, I think this is the whole thing about, you know, as um, Binford famously said, archaeology is anthropology or it is nothing. Of course, he was completely wrong. Archaeology is everything or it is nothing. Archaeology is the epitome of all understanding of the world Mm -hmm. that we live in. But that's just my opinion, man. I think when we when we talk about archaeology, I think it's too easy for us. Well, it's too easy to kind of go along with the standard societal view that archaeology is predominantly just about the far distant past. Mm-hmm. And I think that we can use the way in which we think about archaeology today to consider how really we behave. You know, I think archaeology has very much a reflexive view, not just reflexive in the sense of how we investigate things that we look at how we are looking but rather we kind of begin to understand how we as humans affect the world in our own little ways and how we create things in a space like you were talking about the previous occupants of the house how they would leave things behind and then in contrast to how you have now used that space and i think bringing those kind of very normal things to people and giving the public an idea that, well, people in the past would use their space in the same way that you use their use use your space. I mean, there's no there's no real difference. Humans have always used space for things. You know, we have the the kitchen to do one thing, the bathroom to do another, the living room for something else. And this is what people in the past had. The people in the past were not so different as people imagine. And by drawing those comparisons and bringing the past to people, I think we can get a more a higher level of interest and a higher level of understanding in that archaeology and the past. And I think that's what's key in kind of getting people involved in archaeology. Well, you know what's interesting about archaeology and anthropology is, I mean, if you break down the words, they mean exactly the same thing. Um, you know, archaeo is is uh, 
Greek and anthro is is Latin. So, um, but they both mean the study of humans. It's just we've taken archaeology to mean the study of past humans, right? So, but I don't I don't necessarily really kind of agree with that because we we interchange the words so much that does that that implies that anthropology is the study of current you know, human practice, like cultural anthropology and the variations on cultural anthropology. But then you've got paleoanthropology. That's not the study of current anything. And in fact, that's the study of pre-humans. <laughs> so um, it's, uh, it's interesting. And, and I think, I think if, we, if we just divorce archaeology, I don't know how we got on this, but we're going to go to break here soon. But um, if we just, to me, if we divorce the word archaeology from, um, from any sort of interpretation and we bring it just back into a process and a science, and then we use anthropology to interpret that science, um, you know, from whatever standpoint you want to study it from, then I think it becomes a little easier to see and a little easier to explain and a less cloudy. But I'll let you guys uh, tell me I'm full of crap here in uh, about 30 seconds. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. All right, we're back. And uh, as usual, Tristan disagrees with me um, in that uh, archaeology and anthropology mean the same thing, but archaeology is a process. So, Tristan, what the hell's wrong with you? Well, no, 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 Chris. What the hell's wrong with you? You're trying to say – right. The thing is archaeology is not – it is a nebulous thing. Like I would say – Archaeology is everything because ultimately archaeology has expanded beyond its, you know, standard kind of format of we dig the past. Instead, it's kind of I think there's much more to archaeology than just um, talking about the past. To me, archaeology extends into the future. It extends into how we preserve that past, for what reason we preserve that past. And I don't think there's really a simple and easy way to divorce the Basically, the rituals that we perform as scientists and as anthropologists away from archaeology. You know, we can talk about how we can do biomolecular testing, um, XRF, that's X-ray refraction, and a lot of other really cool chemical tests that we can do. But that doesn't take away from the fact that we always need to interpret information in archaeology. And that's why archaeology is almost emotional in some way but i don't think that's a bad thing i think that archaeology provides both a way of us understanding the past but through that we understand how our society currently exists as well and so when you were saying about oh well we leave the anthropology afterwards and we separate and just do the hard science and archaeology it doesn't really work with like that because ultimately when you just do the science you're just doing science you're not doing archaeology and i don't mean that in like a pejorative sense of it's not science it's in a sense that science is merely a component of how we get that information but not what we do with it archaeology is very much what we do with that information when we have it and by connecting people to the ways and processes that we do in archaeology by bringing archaeological ideas and emotions into everyday life that's how we then make a case for why archaeology is important because that's what we're missing we're missing the fact that archaeology is really important and it's it's a really difficult it's a difficult war to win but i'm not we can't split it up i'm not saying it's not important i mean obviously everything starts with archaeology especially if you're not studying something that is um that is current like current cultural anthropology you go out and study current living people you interview them you you record how, what they do with archaeology we have to piece together that information that same story from the remains from from what they left behind from their trash from their junk so archaeology is everything in the sense that um it all starts with that and i think about that a lot when i'm out recording on uh, cultural resource management projects here in the united states because 
a lot of times, you know, because of the nature of CRM, we're going to be the last ones to ever see what we're recording. We're going to be the last ones to ever do anything with it because uh, it's going to be destroyed. So the, the information that I write down, if I'm having a bad day and it's hot out and I don't have enough water left and my crew chief is irritating me and, you know, whatever's going on and I decide to just you know, say, ah, oh, there's nothing here, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just a couple flakes. I don't care, whatever. You know, I'm not going to write that, but that's what my writing is going to reflect. That's now the story of that three, four, five, six, seven thousand year old site. That's now its story is my, sh my, my crappy day is, is just, you know, that's how that's reflected. <laughs> I try to, I try to actively think about that when I'm writing that stuff down, even if it's just two flakes, even if it's just two cans. And if there's, I try to write down as much as I can about it. And that's what I mean by archaeology is the process. That's the process of archaeology. But I try to do very little interpretation on my site records. I don't think that's the time or the place. Um, now I might try to do a little interpretation if this is a national register significant site. If there's some criteria on the National Register of Historic Places that this applies to, then you kind of have to do a little bit of interpretation. You have to say, well, it's important because this. But if I'm not doing that and it's and, it, and we know it's not significant, um, then I try to leave interpretation out of it and I try to heavily, heavily describe so other people in other contexts can interpret it based on, you know, other criteria. Because if you're trying to interpret that site based on just the site alone, you're going to come up with probably a different interpretation than if you take a macro approach and you look at the 50 sites in that area and then put it all together as one big cohesive story. That's really verging into anthropology, though, and I don't think that's really archaeology. The archaeology is the process of making that happen, the baseline, the foundation, and then you get into anthropology. That's, that's what I mean. What about you, April? Uh, whose side are you on? Pick sides. <laughs> Go on. Whose side are you on? Can I pick the middle? Centrist. Oh, come on. Can I be on. a centrist? Yeah, I like that. I like spoken that. like a yeah. spoken like a historic archaeologist. I'll tell you what. Yeah. Well, I think it's hard because I think part of what this comes down to is it's very hard to separate interpretation out of archaeology completely because even when you're trying to write these really detailed, careful site records and avoid interpretation you're still making certain types of interpretations just by what you choose to include because you're kind of deciding what's important and what's not. And that's an yeah. interpretation of the site right there. And so I think, but you know, that's one of the challenges in anthropology, in archeology span is that we're not an objective science. There isn't the same kind of hard and cold cut result that can be easily replicated over and over and over again. You know, it's just, it's not possible for us. And so we're always doing forms of interpretation, even in choosing what tests we're going to run, um, in choosing the site that we're going to study. It's still interpreting what we think is happening there, even before we start doing archaeology often. And so, you know, I, I think this is just part of the challenge is that archaeology and anthropology are both separate and you're right, archaeology is partly a process, um, but we really, it's very hard to separate the two completely, I think. They're very intertwined because we're partly using these anthropological tools and mindsets, but we've augmented them with the processes and methods and thought processes of archaeology. Basically, I'm saying we're better than straight-up anthropology here. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I, I I agree with that. I mean, the thing is, then you know, how do we how do we kind of put that in a way that more people kind of feel that you know feel the same way about archaeology as we do? You know, obviously for us, uh, I, I mean, I definitely speak for myself here. Archaeology is very very important, um, but ultimately in the general scheme of things, people are only really interested by really old stuff and the majesty of old stuff. The, you know, the kind of like, Ooh, ooh that's, that's really interesting. That's ages. That's thousands of years old or hundreds of years old. Um, do you think that when we talk about interpretation, do we think there's almost like a, a, a need to kind of include a much more embracing of modern or historical archaeology and what you do? I mean, how, how does your, how does historical archaeology, April, in your eyes, kind of differ from prehistoric archaeology in the way that you present that to the public? Hmm, that's actually a really good question. Um, I think, all right, 
as I'm thinking about how we approach it to the public, because I work with World War II stuff. And so we're actually working with community members who lived at the sites we worked at. Um, and part of it is convincing them that their memories, their experiences, and their material objects have great intrinsic value and tell stories. And so I think this comes down to using some of the tools that Chris is talking about, some of the methods of archaeology, and showing them how they can apply it or how it can be applied to the modern world and used to reconstruct the past and share the past through interpretation. Um, and so saying, okay, look at your family photo album. You know, this is a material object, an archaeological object that tells the story of your family. Um, now let's unpack it. Let's, let's excavate this photo album and think about, you know, who made it? Why did they make it? How did they make it? Um, what are the images that it shows? What do the different images show? What's the story they tell? What places are these objects rooted in? Um, and getting them to start connecting all of these pieces. And so that's really using kind of archaeological methods to think about things that matter to us on a daily basis. So our own personal histories. And I think once you start connecting archaeology to your personal history, then you can start connecting it to kind of the larger world around you and saying, oh, the town I live in may seem really modern, it's not ancient, but there's actually really interesting archeology span to think about how neighborhoods change over time, um, how it was built, why the house I live in looks like this. Oh, it has six additions and they were, you can tell by looking at how things overlap when they were built and when my house was added onto. And then all of a sudden it, it becomes really tangible to us. I think April, you hit the nail on the head there, um, is when you're talking about, especially with you guys, you know, where you work, I mean, you actually have people that you know lived in the camp that you're in the camp that you're studying, the place where you're at. Um, you know, when they were children, and you can talk to them, those people and their descendants for sure. And um, but that's the thing is you're you you said that their stuff tells a story that's important because you're finding with archaeology you find stuff, and this is the thing I've been hammering on on podcast after podcast lately, and I'm glad it's coming up sort of organically and I didn't have to bring it up, is that the artifacts are not themselves the important things. The artifacts help tell a story and the artifacts help, help, help relate that story, you know, to the surroundings. Um, and that's why it's important that artifacts are found in place in association with the other things where they were initially left with. Um, so we can, you know, so we can fill in the parts of that story a little better. And that's the important part, you know, and that's why, that's why archaeology itself um, is important in the fact that we need to, you know, since we may never see the site again, uh, in a lot of cases over here in the West, we have to record with as much detail as possible how that artifact was found, where it was found, what it was found in association with, what orientation it was found in sometimes is important. Um, you know, things like that. And, and people might not think that's important, but let's say you have a prehistoric uh, living surface and uh, you have, say, a, a projectile point or, 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 you know, pottery or something like that, but it's all jumbled around and it's all, you know, vertically, horizontally, and you've got all these places. Well, chances are that that isn't a primary um, orientation for that because if it was dropped on a flat, hard-packed living surface, it's going to be pounded in flat and it's going to stay like that. So something else happened there. Either somebody else came in and dug it up and then all that stuff happened like that or rodent activity or something like that. And you can tell that that's probably not in its primary position from how it was dropped. So orientation and all that stuff is really important. And then we use those things to tell the stories. We use those things to, those artifacts to tell the stories of who lived there. The artifacts themselves become less important once the story is told, you know, because it's the story that people care about. Tristan, you even said that. People like to hear stories um, about the past and we use artifacts to tell those stories, but the artifacts themselves are not the story. They're just a part of the story. That's my thought. No, I, I completely get that. And I think this is the way in which we have to use archaeology. Well, not use archaeology. It sounds as if there's like the end point beyond archaeology. There's Archaeology has to be done through the frame of um, engaging people and getting them involved. And well, actually, just another question to you, April. Um, you know, 
obviously the world second world war has a lot of contentious history in it Mm -hmm. uh do people think do you find that people react differently to a history that maybe is much more in the common knowledge to a history that may be something that they're surprised to find through the examination of their own information how how have you kind of dealt with more difficult history Hmm. i think as long as it's done in a way that doesn't directly contradict and negate what they think they know and understand. So I think what <laughs> throws people off is when you're told you're wrong. Like, so I used, I work in museums and we do a lot of interpretation and tours and talking to people. And one of the things is the minute you tell a visitor or you tell someone in a museum that they are wrong, their understanding of the world is not the correct understanding. They shut down, right? Like, I'm not going to listen to you. You're a stranger telling me that my understanding of this world is not correct. Forget it. I'm done. Um, and so you have to come up with ways of saying, okay, your understanding is valid and has merit. However, here's how this alternative history fits into things. Um, sorry, that's my cat. Um, <laughs> and so you have to, you have to make it work in a weird way where you're not directly telling them, but you're fitting it in. You're kind of working at the edges. And I think this is something archaeology is really good at because we can show people material things, right? So for us, the stories are sort of embedded in these objects. And when you can hold an object, when you can walk through an internment camp, it's really hard to deny that that part of history happened because it's a physical, tangible thing. It's there. You've now touched it. You've seen it. It's part of your tangible experience that you've gone through just by walking through, just by seeing archaeology. And I think that's part of why like, when you go to other countries, like when Americans travel to Europe or Italy or anywhere, we are traveling to experience someone else's past and culture. And so maybe this gets to the Italy thing too for you, Tristan, is, you know, you went there to experience their culture. And so it, it was everywhere for you different, Mm. but the places that we live in, we live in every day. And so it's a lot harder to kind of step back and say, oh yeah, okay. This has the same thing. It's part of my daily experiences, but to other people, this is unique. This is the American cultural experience. Oh, this is American history. Mm. Okay. Don't well, know if that Trist- actually answered your question or just navigated really carefully. Around <laughs> it. Um. Tristan, you're kind of living through some history too. Um, you know, as far as uh, recent events are concerned, because, I mean, how long has the UK been in the European Union? And now, as you guys exit oh. the European Union, is there is there anything around you physically that's a direct result? Like if like the building or something wouldn't be there if it weren't because of the European Union, and now you can attribute that to that phase of the history? Well, you only have to look at, actually, like Scotland in particular and where I grew up in Northern Ireland, both places received a lot of EU funding. And Mm -hmm. actually, um, especially in Belfast in particular, there are several buildings there that were specifically built with EU money, like majority, 80 90% built with EU funding. Those buildings are there because of the EU. And it's kind of almost funny that in some ways, some of the areas, especially in England, that actually received the most EU funding to account for their lack of support from the British government and from a lot of other things, they're the ones who actually voted the highest to leave. Because it was never explained to people. Right. Um, I, I think w- what we're what we're going to see after Brexit, unfortunately, is we're going to have a lack of funding for research, which will have a knock-on effect in the ability for us to actually study our past. And we're going to also see buildings that are listed buildings um, kind of like uh, – they're not going to have the same support as they do now. And that's going to be a real shame because – the building and monumental architecture of archaeological kind of history in Britain is very important, and it's also very old. Nice. Okay, well, we're gonna 
take one more break and then we're going to come back and wrap up this topic with this, this rambling sort of, uh, I'm not sure what we're even talking about anymore topic. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to try to coalesce this into one coherent thought uh, right after the break. That might be a tall order. Back in a minute. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. All right, we're back. So, Tristan, I'm going to throw this back to you because we started talking about how, you know, archaeology is all around us and, you know, we need to be able, we need to be more observant. Um, I think, I think one of the things that we ended up talking about um, as far as the differences between archaeology and anthropology and things like that kind of leads to some big questions and some, some fundamental misunderstandings, I think, of both of those that I'm seeing online. One of the people that I know um, that I'm friends with on Facebook who who always puts up um, interesting questions and philosophical questions and musings and things like that. And he said basically, I think yesterday, the day before, uh, how can how can we talk to non-archaeologists and make archaeology seem important? And that seemed like a really weird question to me because like I said, I see, I do see archaeology as a process and I see that it's important to do that, but that's not what we should emphasize to the public, I think. I think we should emphasize the telling of stories to the public and one of those methods is archaeology because in in like April's case, they're using multiple methods to tell the story of Amache. They're they're using archaeology to tell stories or clear up stories in some cases. You know when when you find out the real story behind something, um, but they're also using user accounts and interviews and um, you know historical photos and uh, journals and things like that. Multiple lines of evidence to tell that story, where it gets weird with archaeology sometimes pure like archaeology like prehistoric archaeology or ancient archaeology is that we don't often have those other lines of evidence the only the only line of evidence we have is what's buried under the ground um so we kind of forget that those other lines of evidence exist and if we could interview somebody that was on that site or if we could interview um or or read somebody's journal that they that we pulled out of the ground or something for that site then we would use that as a line of evidence to just tell that story but um, it really just comes down to the telling of the stories. And that's what we need to impress upon people when they're talking about dismantling heritage laws and things like that. These weird laws that make it so if you want to put a building up in your backyard are really there so we can preserve and tell stories. Not so the government can make more money off selling you a permit and then can give me a job. I mean, that's not why those exist. They exist. And, and people fought really hard back in the 60s and 70s and even before then with like the antiquities law and stuff like that of 1906 to to get these in there so we can tell these stories. Not, I mean, every archaeologist tell you we're not in this to make any money and we don't make any money. Um, it's not a wealthy business. So that can't even be part of it. Big archaeology is not something anyone has ever said. So um, Tristan, where do you think that leaves us with observing the world around you and um, and how you would picture it? Uh, you know, with that, I guess, information in your head. I, I think we need to basically get the archaeology goggles out, you know, and what I mean by the archaeology goggles is we have to really begin to show how archaeology differs from the general perception of it. You know, um, the general perception of archaeology is a certain way. Let's face it, archaeology is defined as this wonderful treasure hunting exercise committed, uh, like done by these uh, really smart boffin heads. Wonderful, interesting people who spend all their time in offices and don't come out <laughs> unless they are in the field. You know, we, we need something more. We need relatable human people describing the past in relatable ways. And that needs to be the ultimate narrative. That's why we have to break into media spaces. That's why we have to break into film spaces. That's why we have to break into the spaces that everybody knows about. Unless we actually actively engage with the public as a whole, we're always going to be tripped up by needing to justify ourselves. And I think that when we need to justify ourselves, it makes it more and more dangerous for a past that we need to protect. So I think twofold, we can 
show how amazing and interesting everybody's past is in of itself i think there's there's a lot of people who kind of think well no i i just came from a normal family normal 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 you know there's nothing interesting but ultimately the way in which we think about the past um is can make the mundane interesting you know i mean for consider the question who is the first person to brush their teeth how did brushing teeth evolve you know, why Why do we brush our teeth nowadays? And more interestingly, um, if we consider tooth wear analysis as a form of identification, will future archaeologists have a problem with um, looking at people's teeth, teeth and dental records because we now brush our teeth quite regularly? You know, the, these are small little ideas that can spawn further ideas. And that's what we need to really inject. We need to inject an energy and a kind of an approach and I think that anybody listening who's not an archaeologist, who hopefully will now consider that archaeology is not just about digging up wonderful old gold statues, will try and entertain their their own history, their their family's history, and their the history that's existed around them. Perhaps there is no information about your great grandparents to mm-hmm. hunt. Maybe you have to look for it, but that doesn't mean there's nothing interesting there. There's always something to find out. And the closer to home that is, the more interesting that is. And when you have those skills applied to who you are as a person, you begin to understand what archaeologists do when they apply their skills to unknown things. I think that's kind of the angle we want to go for, come from. Right. I think that's a great angle. But I think, it, I think part of it is we have to train archaeologists as a it's a lot um, to be storytellers. Mm-hmm. Not all very good storytellers. We're really good at analyzing and talking about the detail and minutia often, but it's then connecting that one lithic, that lithic scatter into a larger story that makes it something interesting so that people can't say, well, why does this one thing matter? What? Mm-hmm. Who cares if we bulldoze that lithic scatter? Um, tell stories with these tiny sites or explain why even, you know, a single thing, you know, as Chris was saying, how did this, how did this projectile point get here? Tell the story of the people. And I think a lot of archaeologists are moving that way and starting to think creatively um, and write some of their, write some more popular books where they are. They're turning archaeology into stories and not big eye-catching stories like, you know, oh, we're digging up Richard III. Um, we'll finally solve this mystery, which I think <laughs> capture the public imagination because they're stories that we want answers to, right? So there are these historical stories that everybody knows and we're looking for a conclusion and we want the next chapter in that book. And archaeology can sometimes provide that, but to explain how it's always stories. We're always answering and telling these tiny stories. And I think we're just not very good at telling stories in an interesting manner. Mm-hmm. And in a manner that connects to the general public. This is what I thought about. Yeah. And that's, um, man, that's so interesting too. Because um, I, I think, uh, I, I was just thinking of Brian Fagan's book, um, Before California. And I think he writes a lot of his books this way. Um, he's a archaeologist and uh, I think anthropologist. He teaches one of the California universities. And, um but he starts each chapter in his books in his book uh, before California, and I'm sure some of the others, but I haven't, I'm not as familiar with those. But he starts it with a story of that time period and that place that he's talking about, because his book is broken up into um, time periods and regional locations. So, um, but he'll start with a story of you know somebody hunting or somebody you know doing something in a village or something like that, and it's related to. Uh, the sites that he's about to talk about and the things like that. And I think that's perfect. He doesn't tell the story last. He doesn't tell the story in the middle. He starts with the story and then the rest of the chapter explains where that information came from to tell that story. And sure, it's an embellishment a little bit because um, it is a it is a story and he's, he's making it up, um, but based on evidence. So, um, but I like that and I wish we did more of it. I wish... I'm turning in a sending a site report to the BLM here in Nevada today, and I'll tell you what, um, there's no room for embellishment. Not embellishment, that's the wrong word, but there's no room for, I guess, serious, real storytelling to say, hey, this is 
this is what, based on what I saw, based on the research that I did, here's here's a narrative that I'm going to give you right now. Um, and I think probably one of the reasons for that is that some people would would write that, and other people other people would read it, and say, and then they would just read that and say, okay, so this is what went on out here. This isn't just an interpretation of the data. This is a fact, and that's how they're going to see that. But it really is just an interpretation of the data. There's no way we can determine facts when it comes to the prehistory in the in the past um ultimately because we weren't there and we don't know how these things were used you know just because i see a spoon sitting there in a in a privy doesn't mean that the last thing that spoon was used for was soup it could have been used to gouge somebody's eye out <laughs> i mean i have no idea you know so i mean why is it in a privy you know they they because they were disposing of the evidence that's why <laughs> that's my interpretation but somebody else may see that completely differently and i'm sure april i mean geez some of the artifacts especially uh at amache where you guys are especially since what you're finding is after people left you know and they probably you know, when they left there, they probably didn't want to hang around, you know, they got the heck out of there. And it's like, I've seen a house after I've left it, you know, when we move and you have to spend two days cleaning, you know, and you're throwing stuff away and you're doing these things. And, and I I know living today is different than living in the forties, but, um, you know, it's, uh, you're trying to interpret what happened there while people live there based on, you know, what was left after just a brief period of time of things being used and probably tossed around and, you know, different stuff. And that's, that's one thing you have to take into account, I guess, when you're telling that story. Yeah, no, definitely. And actually I, so I started out being really interested in the archeology span of children. And I find every time I hike, I will be in the middle of nowhere, find a children's toy. There's a marble somewhere out in the desert every time I hike. And it gets you thinking I'm, I've just hiked 10 miles. Why is there a marble here? What kid was out here? What is the story of this marble? How did it get here? Um, mm-hmm. And kind of thinking through those processes. How did how did objects end up? And I think that's, yeah, yeah, coming up with those stories. And it's easy. I think this is part of why using people's own history is nice because it's easy to create stories about people you kind of knew, like you can create a story about your grandma because you sort of knew her and you knew how she'd respond to situations or you've heard stories about her. And so your own past is very easy to populate kind of imagery and knowledge. You know, to bring this back around to you, Tristan, um, and, and observing the archaeology around you, I think you should start the Brexit archaeology podcast. Um, and, and go out and make, and make each episode about some sort of building or built environment that is Brexit related. <laughs> I think so be, we can preserve quite it. a few episodes. I think for me, you know, we have this <laughs> constant kind of pressure of Brexit, but at the end of the day, you know, this is a process that's ongoing. I'm sure the history books will have more than enough to write about it in hindsight, but I think, you know what, I'm going to talk about the interesting history if I'm going to talk about any of it. And to be fair, before Brexit actually physically really does happen, I'm going to live in the dreamland that maybe, maybe somebody's going to mess it up and miss a deadline and it won't happen or something like that. You know, this can still happen. <laughs> but no, I, th- I think, nice. you, know, th- th- you know, I don't want to place undue pr- importance on something that is yes it's going to affect a lot of things but ultimately archaeology and history of britain is not just its connection to the eu you know the connection to the eu is less than 100 years old and there's been so many other things that happened in the uk before that i think you know the the kind of ideas that maybe political lines mean something don't really mean anything i mean look at america look at the differences between states i'm sure that if you look deep enough into the past state lines don't really mean anything you know you have groups of people living basically across state lines so in the same way archaeology in here in the middle west um has some sort of it doesn't really follow the lines that already exist um Mm -hmm. i just hope that we are able to with all the cuts of austerity uh to really still be able to keep up with the demands 
of our history. And that means looking after our places, uh, our people, and our records. And that's really important. Um, we'll see how that goes. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> well, and maybe that, but still, yeah. Go ahead. Maybe that links in really well with this idea of history and archaeology all around us, where when people start seeing the archaeology of the places that they live in, then all of a sudden they're vested in preserving it, even if there isn't giant pots of funding or, you know, instead of raising that house and building something new, they start to see it as something of value mm-hmm. and they want to preserve it. You know, they want to keep the cobblestones instead of putting down new tarmac because it is part of the archaeology of that town. Yeah, I, I think I think it's helpful to um, to look at all that stuff as though to look at all the things around you and not look at it as it's somebody else's thing. It's somebody else's, you know, not my problem, not my deal. Um, but look at it for what it is as historical, because we tend to we tend to focus on our own stuff pretty heavily, um, and we are interested in those stories. But we just need to realize that maybe somebody's not telling all those other stories, and we need to look around us and, and find those. Because, like for example, you know. Um, April, you know that your um, your brand new babies are not going to be able to tell the own story, their own story of this time in their life because they're just trying to figure out how to like you know think and be humans right now. So you've probably taken a thousand photographs already, or you and a whole bunch of other people have already taken all these photographs so you can help tell that story for them when they're old enough to understand it and and then you know embarrass them when you show them pictures of them in the kitchen sink um that seems to be like a requirement of moms to do i'm not really sure why but anyway um so yeah i mean i think just i think just looking around and and trying to trying to see what other stories are out there is is the is the fun and exciting part tristan were you gonna say something no no, no. i was disagreeing i, I think it's quite amusing no. what i'm what what lengths mothers will do to embarrass their children honestly it's terrible my my grandma has like my brother myself and like two of my cousins um in the same bathtub um covering themselves when they're like three or four years old um all of us with toys in the bathtub and those pictures are on the wall in her bathroom like i'm like why seriously (laughs) seriously why is that there um, what story is that telling aside from my first embarrassment? So, um, anyway, so yeah, that's, uh, that's about it for this show. Um, I would say, um, take a look. Uh, I'm glad Tristan and I talked about this and then we, we decided to put it on the show so the three of us could have a conversation about it. Cause you know, it's really important, especially in today's um, society in the United States where heritage laws are, are constantly under fire. Um, and, and people have to realize that the people that want these laws taken away are not looking at it from really a historical standpoint. They're looking at it from a financial standpoint. They're saying that law or that regulation, that heritage regulation, whether it's NEPA or NHPA or whatever it is, is costing my pipeline an additional $500 million. Ooh. That's true. That's true. But that's what it costs to preserve and tell those stories forever because once your pipeline goes in it's gone those stories can't be told anymore so that's my my final thought on that and that's what i'll leave everybody with so feel free to uh disagree or agree with us and comment wherever you saw this and let us know how it went thanks a lot april and tristan thanks Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks, and in the meantime, keep learning, keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day.
This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Bro.